Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Have you ever paid much attention to your mindset? Do you wish that you had emotional skills, habits, and ways of looking at the world that served you better? Our guest on this episode, Julia Galef, says you can learn new ways of looking at the world, and you should. Julia is the co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality, the host of the podcast, Rationally Speaking, and the author of the new book, The Scout Mindset, why some people see things clearly and others don't. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's so great to be on the show. What a great intro. You deserve it. Uh, Tell us what the scout mindset is. Yeah. So the scout mindset is my term for the motivation to see things as they are and not as you wish they were. So it's it's part of this larger metaphor of, of the book in which we humans are often by default in what I call soldier mindset, in which our motivation is to defend our pre-existing beliefs or defend the things that we want to believe against any evidence or argument that might you know, threaten them. And so scout mindset is an alternative to that. And whereas a soldier, is their role is to attack and to defend, the scout's role is just to go out and, and see what's really out there and form as accurate a map of reality as possible. So why do you focus so- all about scout mindset and, and you know, how to shift from soldier towards scout and why we should do that. Why is it that so many of us have this defensive mindset, even when we're presented with true information that goes against those thoughts? And I'm sure all of us can think of situations where we've been in a fight and we've gone so far. We believe our side, we're presented with different information, and yet we still don't want to give up the fight, even though we know we're wrong. Yeah, it's, I've been there many times myself, and I should emphasize that even though I sometimes talk about scouts or soldiers, it's not like anyone is a pure soldier or a perfect scout. We're all a mix of scout and soldier, uh, and in you know different days and different contexts, we might be better or worse at being in scout mindset. And so really my my what I'm trying to advocate is shifting somewhat from soldier to scout, um, and I'm not claiming that anyone can really be a perfect scout. But yeah, so to your question of why, why is soldier mindset so often just our, our instinctive default, I think it's a great question. And you know, I, I really try to take soldier mindset seriously and ask, why do we do this? You know, and not just take it for granted that it's pointless or useless. And I think there are a few things that soldier mindset is, is trying to protect. So you know, for one thing, it's trying to protect our ego, our ability to feel good about ourselves and feel good about our lives. And so we'll often try to instinctively defend beliefs that help us feel good about ourselves. And then there's this other side of it where soldier mindset is trying to help us look good to other people. So we might you know, be really resistant to changing our mind because on some level we feel like that's going to make us look bad or look weak or look stupid. Um, and so, you know, we have this instinctive urge to resist that. And then also we, we might uh, try to defend beliefs that help us look smart or look uh, virtuous or, or mature. Like, you know, I'm, I might be motivated to defend certain political beliefs that I think make me seem like a good person or will make the other people, you know, the other people around me who have those beliefs will make them think that I'm part of their tribe and that I'm a good person too. How can we determine what mindset we have? And I, I know you said that we each have a combination of scout and soldier, but yeah. do we tend to, to go more for one or the other? And how can we determine what it is? 
It's a great question um, because I think most of us feel like we're being scouts. You know, we it's rare that anyone will say, well, of course, I'm I can tell that I'm being unreasonable and biased and unobjective here. Like, no, we all feel like we're being reasonable and objective, even if we're kind of reasoning in a biased way that's universal. So, you know, rather than asking yourself, uh, do I feel like I'm a scout or do I feel like I'm a soldier? I think it's more helpful to just look at your track record of behavior. Um, and so there are some kind of signs of scout mindset uh, that are, I think, better guides to how good of a scout you are. For example, can you think of times when you've proved yourself wrong? Like maybe you were going to post something on Facebook or tweet something about some current events, and then you looked into it more and decided, oh, actually, no, I think I, I, think I had that one wrong, so maybe I won't tweet this. Or you know, can you think of times in an argument where you recognize the other person was right and you told them so and said, you know, ah, okay, maybe you're you have a point about this. I think things like that are are good signs of scout mindset, um, along with other things like just even being able to name critics of yours, like critics of your beliefs or critics critics of maybe your lifestyle choices who you think are smart and reasonable, even if you disagree with them, instead of feeling like everyone who disagrees with you is all stupid and unreasonable. So those are, those are a few signs of a uh, scout mindset. The subtitle of the book is why some people see things clearly and why others don't. So yeah. why is that? Yeah. So I, I should walk that back a little bit because, you know, as I say, we're all a mix of both. And so I don't mean to say that everyone, you know, or that there's some people who are, you know, completely unreasonable, but I do think that there are some people who are who are better at seeing things clearly in some situations. And I think it's valuable to figure out what they're doing right. Um, so a large part of it is just having strategies for looking good and feeling good, which, you know, as I, I acknowledge are, are really valuable things that are important for getting through the day as a human, um, having strategies that don't require soldier mindset. And so, so I think some people have better strategies, like honest, non-self-deceptive, coping strategies than other people do. And, and that really helps them. So for example, uh, suppose you, suppose you're like a door to door salesman and someone slams the door in your face. Uh, that's, that's stressful and, you know, maybe hurts your feelings. And so of course you reach for a coping strategy, something to make yourself feel better. And a lot of people will reach for something like, well, you know, she was a jerk, uh, or, you know, it wasn't my fault and that makes you feel better. It may or may not actually be true. Um, but you kind of don't pay attention to that. But then other people try harder to find a way to feel good that doesn't require telling, telling themselves something false. So they might focus instead on the fact that, well, okay, yeah, she slammed the door in my face, but uh, I'm getting better. Like people used to slam the door in my face every day and now they slam it in my face every week or so. So it's progress, <laughs> you know, if that's true. Like <laughs> the point is there's usually true things that you can focus on that make you feel better instead of having to focus on false things to feel better. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. That totally okay. does. What are the factors that shape the way our mindset develops? Because certainly on the surface, it seems like our mindset would be very much influenced by our parents, for example. Yeah. So I don't know for sure. I, I don't think there's great research on this, but uh, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the way you were brought up uh, influences your mindset. You know, are you, are you praised for changing your mind versus are you punished for saying you don't know something? Do you, you know, what kind of behavior do you see your parents modeling? Um, that, that's got to make a difference, I would think. And, and then even once you're an adult, I think it makes a big difference what communities you're a part of and what kind of values those communities have. 
because there's a lot of variation, you know, uh, in some workplaces or some social groups, people, you know, <laughs> maybe you've had the experience of being in a, a disagreement and the person says something and you pause to think about what they said. And just the fact that you're pausing, that you don't have an immediate rebuttal causes them to kind of grin triumphantly at you. Like, you know, aha, you can't respond immediately to my point. And I hate that. <laughs> and so if you're surrounded by people who do that to you, then that creates this strong pressure to always immediately have a rebuttal to something and, and to never take any time to consider that someone else might be right. Um, but if instead you're surrounded by people who, you know, are happy to let you think about things and change your mind and, you know, praise people who, uh, who, admit that there's nuance in a situation and don't present things in a black and white way, uh, being surrounded by people like that creates, you know, a tailwind. It makes it so much easier to be in scout mindset uh, as compared to the situation, the first situation in which you have, you're facing kind of a headwind that makes it so much harder to be a scout because of the way other people treat you. Do you think that texting makes it easier to be a scout or does it make it a little bit harder? If you're able to write out your thoughts instead of having this one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody mm. where maybe emotions can get high and you have the adrenaline of being in a fight. I think sometimes That's... with texting, it's a lot easier to be more well thought out. Yeah, take That's a such minute. a good question. Yeah. And I've noticed some variation in this. So for me, that really helps. I know that I, I, I've just learned from experience that I'm much better at taking the time to think about what the other person is saying and, you know, revising my response uh, from its, the initial response, which was maybe a little more heated or a little less reasonable than I would like, uh, you know, writing that out and then reflecting on it and rewriting it to something I think is actually more reasonable. Uh, so for me, that, that's, that makes a big difference. Um, I think the reason some people prefer in person is that it, that feeling of human connection and being able to read their body language and, uh, you know, and and see that they're not necessarily trying to attack you with what they say. I think the human connection can also help for some people and in some circumstances, um, help them, help prompt them to interpret the other person's statements in a more charitable way. So I think there are pluses and minuses is what I'm saying. I'm wondering how much our habits get in the way of expanding our, our mindsets. In other words, I think for myself, if I've always done something one way and reacted one way to a particular yeah. situation, you know, then it's, it's hard to change your mindset. Yeah, it is hard. It, it really is. And I, you know, I encourage people to start small and to not, especially to not beat yourself up for not being perfect at this way of thinking right away. Um, because I think that's counterproductive to feel bad when you notice yourself in soldier mindset. I think instead you should feel good when you notice you're in soldier mindset, which might sound counterintuitive, but, you know, as I say, soldier mindset is this universal innate feature of human psychology. And if you never notice you're in soldier mindset, then, you know, what's more likely that you're the one exception to humanity or that you just aren't very self-aware. I, I think the latter is more likely. And so I think you should feel good about becoming more self-aware and noticing the kinds of situations that tend to put you in soldier mindset or the kinds of topics that tend to put you in soldier mindset or the kinds of people. Like there are certain people where I know if I get into a disagreement with this person, I'm going to be in soldier mindset and I need to watch out for that. Um, so yes, I, I think uh, a, an important first step in changing your habits is just becoming more self-aware and feeling good about that and not bad about it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I also advocate focusing on one or two things to try to work on at a time, um, you know, maybe work on 
being more willing to say you were wrong, you know, maybe be more willing to think about that and send a couple emails to people when you remember something that they were right about that you haven't told them about. So I think these kind of incremental steps can be really valuable and, and not stymie progress before it starts. What are some other ways that we can try and work on that soldier mindset while so many of us are working from home and quarantining and have time to really change that quality about ourselves if we want to? Mm, Great question. So, you know, you've probably heard already that it's valuable to, to get outside of your filter bubble or escape your echo chamber and, and try to read things from people who disagree with you, maybe people with different political beliefs. And so I do think that's a really valuable thing to do, but I think the way that people typically go about it is not all that effective. So you know, typically what they'll do is like a liberal will turn on Fox News or a conservative will maybe listen to NPR or something like that. They'll, they'll reach for whatever the most prominent representative of the other side is. And I think that doesn't tend to work very well. In fact, it often backfires. Like liberals will come away from Fox News going, oh, this is even worse than I thought. You know, I, I hate conservatives <laughs> right. even more than I realized. And so that's, that's kind of, it kind of backfires. And I think that makes sense if you think about it, because the most prominent representative of the other side how did they become the most prominent? Well, they did it by playing to their base and you know, maybe presenting things in a really one-sided way that appeals to their audience and making fun of the other side, i.e. you. And that's like exactly the worst kind of source to listen to if you're hoping to you know, be able to stay open-minded and change your mind. So instead, I think it's better to look for people who disagree with you with whom you have at least a little bit of common ground. Um, so you know, maybe people on Twitter who are more conservative and you're more liberal, but you can at least recognize, okay, they're, you know, I can recognize that they're a good person, or I can recognize that they're smart and reasonable in some ways, even if I disagree with them about a lot of important topics. And really just like be on the lookout for these people with whom you at least have some intellectual or some emotional common ground, because those are the disagreements where you have the the best chance of actually expanding your mind to some degree and not just coming away, you know, even more angry than you were before. So that's something you can do from home, you know, just when you're on social media or when you're reading the news, try to prioritize sources that make you more open to changing your mind instead of less. When we talk about the mind, a lot of us tend to overthink some things in our lives. What's wrong with that? (laughs) And, And how do we move beyond that? How do we get past that? I just laugh because on my website, I, I say what I'm just describing in the about me section, I say, you know, I have often been accused of overthinking things and I'm still mulling over whether that accusation has merit. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that, which, oh, is why, yeah. <laughs> which is why I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. Uh, and I think it's important to point out that being a scout does not mean it doesn't mean obsessing over every single decision and being unwilling to act until you have all the information, which is a common failure mode. Uh, and, and I think a common misconception of what it means to, you know, be, try to be rational or logical. Uh, and, and I think this misconception is often reflected in pop culture. So if you watch Star Trek ever, you can see Mr. Spock, the supposedly logical Vulcan in Star Trek. Uh, and, and one of the ways in which the, tri- the show tries to show that he's perfectly logical is that he will often insist on you know, Captain, we can't make a decision until we have all the information. Uh, and this is clearly ridiculous because, you know, you're in a spaceship and you're trying to escape the enemy ships and you have to just make a choice, right? You can't spend forever <laughs> deliberating until you right. have all the info. And I think real life is often like this. You just have to make a choice sometimes. And so 
I think part of being a good scout is, is really trying to, to think honestly about like, is this a choice where it makes sense to keep deliberating? And sometimes there are really important non-reversible choices where you really should spend a long time deliberating. But then a lot of choices that we obsess over are not like that. They're, you know, they're small stakes, they're reversible. Um, and so really what, what makes most sense to do is to just go out there and try something and see what happens. And then the next time you can try again and make a better choice. And so I think often we don't wanna do that because just of fear. And so we tell ourselves, no, I really need more information because you know, I can't make this choice without enough information, but really what's going on is that we don't wanna take a risk. Um, and so in that sense, it can be an excuse for, for inaction. So yeah, I think you should have scout mindset about how much deliberation to do is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, and we wanna be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm very sensitive to that too, but I think that's often misguided that, and that the consequences of not being perfect are really, really not that bad. And the consequences of trying to be perfect and never doing anything are actually quite bad. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a per the perfect example of the compound effect where the more we realize that we can trust our decisions and we don't need to overthink things and that our gut is often the right thing that's often the right choice. And we usually end up coming back to our gut. I think that we end up making better decisions and we have that scout mindset more times. We don't have the soldier mindset. That's what I've noticed in my life. And I think probably you too, mom. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. You too, Julia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think there's this really valuable compounding effect that you're talking about, uh, in which, just trying a decision and seeing how it turns out, assuming it's not a totally huge life-changing decision, you just, you learn more and you get better at making decisions and your, your gut gets smarter over time because you're giving it more experience and more practice. Uh, and so there is this really powerful compounding effect where even if your decisions aren't perfect or are far from perfect now, they're going to get better over time the more you, the more you practice and see what happens. You've advocated keeping a surprise journal. What is yeah. that? And, and why do you think people should keep one? Yeah, so uh, a surprise journal is just keeping track of times when the world surprises you, when things don't turn out the way you had expected, or you know someone behaves in a way that you didn't expect them to, that seems confusing to you. Uh, maybe someone believes something that seems totally wrong to you, but you're surprised because they seem like a smart person. So why do they believe that? Those are just some examples of what I would call surprises. And the reason I advocate that is that our our default response when the world surprises us is often to just ignore it because, well, sometimes because we don't want to change our minds, um, but also because it's, it's just easier to kind of ex- explain away any evidence that contradicts our beliefs. So, you know, if if a smart person believes something that seems surprisingly wrong to you, it's easy to just shrug and say, well, you know, they're probably just, um, they're, they, they probably just want to believe that for whatever reason, or they, you know, maybe they're not smart at all. Maybe they're actually stupid. Uh, And there are often easy explanations you can reach for to make, to, to reduce your surprise. But I think the surprise is really valuable because those instances where the world doesn't behave the way you expect it to, those are often like the, the threads that if you tug on them, it will start to unravel some, some aspect of how you see the world uh, and, and lead to a much richer picture and more accurate picture of, of how things work. And so, so I think basically I'm advocating fighting against our, our default impulse to ignore surprises and instead 
lean into our confusion and our surprise and pay more attention to them and really mull over them. Uh, and that's what leads us to, to change our mind. Do you think that people have gotten more defensive during the pandemic and are using that soldier mindset more? I don't know. I, I mean, there are definitely a bunch of signs of this happening. You know, the, the, a lot of seemingly straightforward scientific questions about the pandemic and how it spreads and how to prevent it um, have, have become, they've become very conducive to soldier mindset because they've become very politicized. Um, and so that, you know, that doesn't look good for our, our scout mindset as a society, but, uh, but I don't know that I want to blame that on the pandemic. It, it, it does seem like a lot of things get politicized these days um, that didn't have to get politicized mm-hmm. and make it harder for us to think clearly and honestly and objectively about them. So mm-hmm. I think um, people are just crankier and more ripe for a fight right now. That's what it seems like to I me. Mean, Maybe that could, aren't that could well logic. be true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a general rule, I think that's true that the more, the more stressed out you are for whatever reason, um, the harder it is to, to do that step of, you know, stepping back and being self-reflective and, and, maybe looking for a more charitable way to interpret what someone said and not immediately assuming that they're evil and stupid, (laughs) that all of that stuff requires a bit of cognitive and emotional effort and and overhead. And all of that is in scarcer supply, the more, you know, stressed out you are. So that, that could well be true. You've said it's valuable to engage with ideas that seem weird or bad. Why is that the case? Yeah. So a lot of ideas that seem weird and bad actually are weird and bad. <laughs> so I don't want to deny that. Okay. <laughs> um, the thing is, I think humans in general tend to err too much on the side of ignoring anything that sounds weird and bad. Um, and that some, and that we end up missing some sizable minority of those ideas that actually have some merit, or at least, you know, at, at least can, can point out something inaccurate in the way that we were previously seeing the world. So uh, and also that it requires a little bit of effort to, to actually understand an idea and some ideas that seem weird and bad at first, once you really dig into them and understand what the person means, don't actually seem as unreasonable as you had thought. So there's a, this example I talk about in the book of um, a, a friend of mine was in Egypt and he was sitting in a cafe and ended up striking up a conversation with a girl in the cafe who... Uh, she was Muslim, and I think she had never met uh, an atheist before. My friend is atheist. And so they, they had a really nice conversation. But at some point, she mentioned evolution. And she said, so you're, you know, you're an atheist, but presumably you're not one of those crazy atheists that believes that humans, you know, monkeys turned into humans, right? And my friend was like, well, I do actually believe evolution is a thing. And the, the girl was shocked. She was like, but it's, that's so crazy. How could you possibly believe that monkeys turned into humans? And... And so my friend kind of tried to explain, you know, what the theory of evolution says. And, and he was trying to explain, no, it's not really that monkeys just one day turned into humans. It's, it's a more subtle process than that. It happened over a period of, you know, many, many years. And, you know, he tried to talk about genes. And I'm not sure how much progress he made in explaining it to her. But the point is that when she first heard the idea of evolution, it sounded completely crazy to her. But she didn't, she didn't have a full picture of it. And, you know, it's easy to kind of laugh at her if you already understand evolution. But I think we often do this a lot, that things that sound crazy to us, we dismiss. But if we really took the time to understand them better, they wouldn't seem quite as crazy as they initially did. 
Mm -hmm. You gave some other really good examples in the book about how people use this in the real world. And one of them was about how Jeff Bezos used this to prevent overconfidence. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this. I I didn't know it before I started researching my book, but when Jeff Bezos was first deciding to start the company that would become Amazon, uh, he he made an unusually strong effort to, to really be clear-eyed and scout-like about his odds of success, the odds that his company would be successful. And his estimate was 30%. I'm about 30% sure that Amazon will, will one day succeed. And he got to this number by essentially looking at the, the base rate, like the just in general, if you look at internet startups in the 90s, how many of them are successful? And his sense was that about 10% of them succeed. And so he thought, you know, I think I'm pretty smart. I think my idea is pretty great. So I think I have better than average odds, but I still have to adjust upward from that baseline of 10%. And so maybe I have about a 30% chance. That was his rough guess, which, you know, is it's much lower than most founders think and talk about their companies. Like the pressure on a, an entrepreneur is to just believe with all of your being that you are definitely going to succeed. And that is what gives you motivation. And that's what gives you confidence. Um, that's, that's kind of the common wisdom. And so Jeff Bezos is this striking counterexample to that common wisdom. Um, and you might think that even if Jeff Bezos believed internally that he only had a 30% chance of success, that surely he wouldn't tell anyone else that. But he did. In all of his initial pitch meetings to raise money for Amazon, he was very clear with his potential investors. He said, you know, I think there's about a 70% chance that this is going to fail and that you'll lose your money. So, you know, don't invest anything that you're not prepared to lose. And uh, and, and I think it's it's really quite striking and, and informative that, that his ability to be um, to recognize uncertainty and to be candid about uncertainty did not prevent him from inspiring a bunch of people and raising a bunch of money and getting a bunch of people to work for Amazon um, and you know to make the company successful in the end. And so really understanding what Bezos did and how how to acknowledge uncertainty in the world and to acknowledge the possibility, the real possibility of failure without getting demotivated and without losing your ability to inspire other people, I think is really, really valuable. Julia, as you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always Uh ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about the scout mindset or the soldier mindset or overthinking things or decision making in general that you had to learn the hard way that it would have been nice if you had not had such a, a tough path to learn? Yeah, uh, that is, that's a great question. I, I mean, actually, the story of Jeff Bezos is is maybe a great segue into my nobody told me moment because I had always assumed before before kind of looking into this subject um, for years for my book, I had always assumed that there was this trade off that you had to make between seeing things realistically on the one hand and being like appearing confident on the other hand, and. And I assumed that, you know, if you want people to look up to you as a leader or as an expert, then you have to always state things with certainty. Um, and I thought, oh, this is just an unfortunate trade-off in the world. Um, and then after years of of reading studies and looking at real-life examples like Bezos, I've come to believe that that's actually not true, um, that there isn't nearly as much of a trade-off there and that we can kind of 
have our cake and eat it too, so to speak. Uh, we can recognize uncertainty where it exists without seeming unconfident. And I think the secret that I was missing all that time is that there are two different kinds of confidence that, that I was just conflating and that I think a lot of people conflate. There's, I call them epistemic confidence and social confidence. So epistemic confidence is just how certain are you of your beliefs? You know, are you 100% certain that your company is going to succeed or are you 30% certain? Those are examples of high and low epistemic confidence respectively. And then social confidence is just about like how self-assured are you? Do you, do you speak in a confident tone? Do you have good posture? Do you seem at ease in social situations? Are you comfortable speaking to groups? Um, those are all signs of social confidence. And what I think the example of Jeff Bezos and other people illustrates is that social confidence is important for getting people to trust you and look up to you and follow you. But epistemic confidence is not nearly as important. Like you can say things like, oh, I'm only about 30% sure my company will succeed. But if you say it confidently and if you, you know, uh, go out there and try things and take risks and, and hold yourself with confidence, that's what people are paying attention to. It's not, you know, whether you claim to be 100% certain in everything. And, and I think this is great news because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to be a scout, if you're going to try to see things honestly, then you can't really justifiably be 100% sure of everything. That's just not, that's not possible if you're being intellectually honest. And so I think it's wonderful news that you don't have to do that in order to project confidence to people and, and be influential. So that was the thing I was very delighted to learn. Well, these are all great ideas, great concepts, and I'm sure people are really going to want to read the book and check you out. So how can they do that? Oh, I hope so. Um, so the book is called The Scout Mindset. You can get The Scout Mindset on Amazon or on the Penguin Random House site. And then you can also go to my website, juliagaliff.com, um, where I have a page for The Scout Mindset and, uh, and also links to my podcast, Rationally Speaking, um, and to my YouTube videos as well. So yeah, please come check me out and, uh, and maybe uh, give some of my other episodes a listen. All right. Well, we thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure. You guys ask great questions. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> give great answers. Again, oh, our thanks to Julia Galef. Again, her new book is called The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. And her website is juliagaliff.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.